Welcome to the Beth and Kelly Show, a weekly Facebook Live conversation between Beth Fortune and Kelly Klingen. That's me. And we've made it into a podcast. Beth Fortune currently serves as Education Director at Wintergrass, the National American String Teachers Association Board, and Chair of the National Council for Orchestral Education. I currently serve as Education Director at Jazz Ed the Washington President at Jazz Education Network, and Jazz Curriculum Officer for Washington Music Educators Association. We have a platform, and we really want to leverage it for positive change. Please hit us up. Let's have a conversation, and uh, let's move our practice as music educators forward. Um, Anyway, we've got some amazing guests today on our show. Um, these are professional musicians and professional educators, music educators, and leaders in our music education world and leaders in our music industry. Um, and we all share a really unique stance in our approach to our professional lives. Um, we've all decided that we are going to have a sober lifestyle, sober lifestyle in our work and, um, and in our life. And say all of us, you you three, um, (laughs) although I've thought about it, not going to lie. And, uh, I, I, I try really hard. I find football games and gigs to be the impossible moments. Right. um, Right. But today, even though it is happy hour, I am drinking tea mm. out of solidarity. Yes, oh. that's cool. I should have got a Keep beverage. coming back. Yeah, <laughs> I'm drinking tonic water. Wait, I have a tonic water. Yeah, go get your tonic water. I'm going to get my tonic water so I can mm-hmm. be a part of the fun. Absolutely. Now it's a party. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, you know, just like Kelly, um, all of us have spent time in the performing circuit. And, you know, I, I just want to open up this conversation. Um, and when Tristan gets back, I'll introduce each person. But I want to open up this conversation about, um, you know, what led us all on this path and, um, and how's it going kind of thing. But let me introduce our guests for tonight. and. Many of you might remember Annie Savage from, oh, August of last summer. Not this last summer, but the summer before. She joined us. In the early episodes. In an early episode, she joined us um, for a very awesome conversation. And Annie and I do a lot of work together in the string education world, the ASTA world, and also Annie is the director of a program called mocks at Wintergrass, which has to do with teens learning music performance, but also other aspects of the music industry um, in the festival. So that's a program that Annie runs and Tristan helps that with that program at Wintergrass. Now, Tristan is one of Nashville's most in-demand mandolin players. He's a gigging musician who spends a lot of time volunteering um, his time for education, music education. He volunteers for the Country Music Association. He volunteers for Wintergrass. 
um, and does other music education outreach and always has. That's one of the things about Tristan. He's always done that. Um, and he also lends his leadership to our industry. He's a member of the International Bluegrass Music Association Board of Directors. And are you hitting go on the conference like this weekend? Or Yeah, yeah I fly yeah. out Sunday night. Yeah, okay. So, and the IBMA board made some real brave decisions over the last few weeks um, where the IBMA board decided to have a vaxxed only event. Awesome. And that was a huge thing. And imagine that community, there was more pushback than let's say in Seattle at Seattle Jazz. Right, exactly. And, you know, I personally have read threats <laughs> to, to Tristan <laughs> for like, it's almost like you made the decision by yourself or something. That's weird. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. You know, it was, they, it was a, we, uh, a lot of people want to feel like it's something that just sort of happened, but like we spent a lot of time thinking and talking about it and looking at things and, um, it, it was a unanimous decision by the board. That is so great. And it makes me want to like pay dues right now. It makes me want to open up another account and pay dues. You know yeah. what I mean? It's like, yeah. it, it makes me want to jump on board with IBMA. And you can find really that. Yeah. You could find them at IBMA.org. If anybody watching wants to contribute or find out more about the conference that's coming up. Yeah, and it's a fantastic conference um, with lots and lots of live music. And if you are in the Raleigh area, um, starting at the beginning of next week, you should keep your ears open. There's going to be um, there's going to be an outdoor component to the festival and and to the conference, and you're going to want to go check out that music. It kind of takes over Raleigh for the week. Yeah. So the street fest so, is free and outside um, yeah. during next weekend. So. And yeah. there's an online component. So even if people want to chime in, they can go to that website and attend yeah. online. Pretty much all great. of our panels and events are going to be live streamed. Not not okay. all of the shows will, but the panels and some of the events will. Yeah. I it's think all of our conferences take that model. Mm -hmm. I think it's a real, um, a, a way that we can help with access. Totally. Um, and a really important one. You know, I mean, we're we're an international organization, yeah. and for years it's difficult to like. I mean, I lived in Colorado for years, and like it's expensive to fly to North Carolina. Yeah. It is. Um, so imagine like trying to come to North Carolina from the Czech Republic or from Sweden yeah. or Japan, and so it's really nice to have that online component. So all these bands all over the world have an opportunity to still participate without having to go through the rigmarole of trying yeah. to explain that they're trying to come to the states to go to a bluegrass conference right. <laughs> what <laughs> that's great i think that's one of the like positive things that we can retain from this time we've oh, yeah all, let's keep it know, let's keep it let's yeah. keep it for sure it reaches more people it's just it's just way more reach so so anyway um thank you to both of you for joining us today and thank you for um being willing to talk about this touchy subject it's definitely a vulnerable topic um 
This is and the first time I've ever felt nervous for a Beth and Kelly show. Really? For reals, I'm kind of like, ooh. Well, you know, out of my comfort zone right now. It's interesting that you say that, Kelly, because I don't, I think a lot of people are really nervous to bring this topic up and I don't talk about it with many people, actually. And in fact, like I had never talked about it with Annie before I brought it up as can you be a guest on the show? So I'm really excited to make this connection with you all because um, sometimes I think that those of us that choose this lifestyle feel kind of alone sometimes. And um, it's, it's a big decision to make. And I think we all come at it from different angles. So I'd love to hear you both kind of talk, tell your story. Who wants to go first? <laughs> Annie? <laughs> oh, thank you. I, yeah, I, I had a little apprehension around the act, the delivery of the show once I said yes, that I would do it. Um, and then it just is one of those things where the benefits outweigh the risk so so clearly. Um, you know, there was a study in the, that someone did years ago on the average life expectancy of musicians versus accountants and folks who are in the military. And um, they were... They were. They found that people who had day jobs lived into their 80s, and the average life expectancy for a musician was like 44. Um, for real? Yeah, it was a study oh that was based on. It was based on the New York Times obituary. So the, I'm a PhD candidate right now, so I would say that it skewed the data probably because they were reporting um, musicians who were in the obituary of the New York Times. But nonetheless, like years ago. Um, I found myself teaching, um, which is a category of its own, um, and an interesting, there's an interesting thing that happened when the record industry essentially um, became a tricky way to monetize your music career in the last couple decades um, that pushed musicians to touring. Um, I, was on, I was on that wave of people who had sold merchandise on the merch table and made a reasonable career selling music and CDs, but then um, suddenly found myself on the road for, you know, 150 days a year, which to me as someone with a family felt like um, a, de a, a detrimental lifestyle, frankly, to be away from your people. Um, and that's where I started to hit the wall with um, substance abuse that then became substance abuse disorder. Um, and I think that happens to a lot of musicians who are touring for a living. And so the music industry overall has a lot to ask itself. I think about how are musicians monetizing their careers? And it's certainly no accident that I ended up being a teacher for a living. Um, and I have watched Tristan, who was part of a project that I played in, a big part, actually, I left the road to raised my child because after two kids who had grown up with me kind of in and out, um, I just couldn't do it again. I couldn't be away from my child. And I knew if I was that my lifestyle would suffer. And at that point I was not abstinent. I was still doing what a lot of artists do, which is you try and work it in, you hit a, a tough patch, you come out. It seems to be like something that could keep going for a while. Mm -hmm. um, you burn a bridge, you keep going, you may, you may 
um, meet people that you didn't meet had you not been out jamming at the campground all night. So it feels like, well, I'm making progress. It's giving something, it's taking away. Um, so I did that for a lot of years, just kind of searching through, is this something that brings me creativity or is it something that's stifling my creativity? Um, and I would advocate in the search for healthy lifestyle that one thing we can do to help people is to remove the stigma of teaching as an artist, because if you're not monetizing your music through um, selling merchandise and you don't want to spend your time developing lines of merchandise, then teaching is really one of the last avenues of, of um, monetizing your musical career that there is. And I think as we saw over the last couple of years, the people who taught have staying power. Um, and the people who see that as such a separate like entity that you're not an artist unless you're making your money suffering. <laughs> um, <laughs> that, you know, that's been the stigma for all along. So I find myself really teaching, you know, 60% of the time performing 40% of the time, but I'm, um, I'm abstinent. My family's, my family's happy, happy and, um, I'm happier than I've ever been. Um, and so I think my story is, um, yet to be concluded. I certainly would love to go back um, and restore a lot of relationships that I was potentially damaging and not even realizing it. Mm -hmm. um, but at this point in my life, I've learned to accept every day for what it is, accept myself for who I am. That's a place that I think you get to when you claim abstinence as your lifestyle is that you really have to, you have to learn acceptance and patience. And um, through those things, I think I've become an artist that operates from within rather than starting on what's on the outside and then trying to emulate that. So mm -hmm. I think it's enhanced my creativity. I'm writing songs for the first time in my life. So um, that's my story. I'm sticking to it. That's what I remember. <laughs> that's, I, I, I love what you just said. And it made me think of, of um, you know, teachers who are mostly teachers and do some performing too. Like Kelly, you taught band and have like a very full performing life as well. I've got a gig tonight and a gig yeah. tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the, the idea that that's not a musical career is a product of capitalism and capitalism has shown that it can be very difficult on these 44 year old artists that were dying over and over. So Fight the man also. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, uh, I'm really like, can't get this idea that you brought up of like needing to, my dog just did a big like yawny growl thing. Sorry. <laughs> um, this idea that uh, we have to suffer to make great art yeah so romantic right I get so stuck on it I love that idea in movies it always are my favorite stories and it's just such a romantic idea you know you grow up and you decide you're gonna be a musician for work and then it's like here comes the suffering <laughs> or something like you just sort of buckle up for it and 
Although, I mean, isn't that the case for public school teachers too? I mean, it is. It is. I mean, <laughs> when Beth and I were teaching together, I had, um, you know, 350 middle schoolers in my grade book that I saw every day. That took a toll. Big one. It takes a toll. I mean, there's, there's an, a legend that we uh, tell a legend about the band director that was found underneath his desk with a bottle of wild turkey. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, like, mean, I can personally name four <laughs> band directors. Oh. I'm not going to say their names who like were basically forced to retire because that was pretty close to the situation. And right. I could see it for myself. I could right. see myself becoming that and I was at a point in my last year of teaching at Washington where you know you'd get home do the dinner do the laundry get the kid to bed and then I would sit down on the couch with my laptop to answer emails for two hours and uh, I would just have a bottle of wine next to me and I realized I don't know, probably about this, about when I gave my notice. So about January that I was drinking a bottle and a half of wine every night. I was like, I got to get the hell out of here. I have got to get the hell out of here. This is killing me, this job. And so you took the- There's something about almost dying that helps a person live, I think. (laughs) No, it's true. Put it on a (laughs) t-shirt. I think I was, I was loosely quoting Tristan. I was creating a brave segue for the Scroggins over here. Take it, dude. Let's hear the Scroggins. Oh, I up front apologize. My camera is up here, but everybody's face is down here. So if I'm looking down here, that's why. And I also went great artwork behind you. So it's a good visual. Thank you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. When I went to go get my ginger beer, I realized in my search for various non-alcoholic things, I bought this non-alcoholic gin and tonic in a bottle. Whoa, Um, cool. It's not very good. So, (laughs) Um, but so I have the ginger beer. Uh, so I don't actually have much of a problem talking about the stuff like my journey, I guess. I think some of that is potentially like a generational thing where everybody mm-hmm. I know goes to therapy and talks about it and like it's just not that big of a deal. But the other component yeah. of that is that part of m- my thing was that I didn't realize that I had a problem for a long time because all of my like metrics were off because of how I grew up and I mean I grew up so I my dad is a great banjo player and he had quit playing music a couple of times um, to like raise a family more or less but would always kind of ended up going back to it and when I turned um, when I was about 12 my parents split up and um, I ended up going with my dad to Colorado to play music and that's why I met Annie and we started playing together and stuff but they didn't want us to play music like my mom actively didn't want us to play music because she saw what that world was like um, so they kind of actively discouraged it I would say like n- not necessarily discouraged but like it just what it never crossed their minds they never tried to have us play music I full independently wanted to do it 
And when I was 12, I think, I joined my first band. Um, and it was, everybody was about 10 years older than me, which <laughs> I thought that they were like very old, but they were 22 year olds. <laughs> and, uh, and like they, you know, they were responsible for me and they like did their best to like be responsible for me. But like they were still just like a bunch of 22 year olds, like taking right. care of a 12 year old kid. Like they didn't know what they were doing. <laughs> so, you know, I ended up like drinking a little bit around them as like a 12 year old, which didn't seem particularly crazy at the time. Um, and because I wasn't like, a fiend for it or anything like just maybe at a festival or whatever um or like maybe there'd be like a standout event where i got blackout that was meant to be (laughs) (laughs) but so then when I got into high school, I kind of got a, well. And another a- aspect of is this is that I was al- I always really one of my favorite mandolin players is Dave Peters. He's this mandolin player from Texas. Um, he's not like super well known, I guess, but he he won the national championship a bunch of times, and he made a lot of really great music. And my dad knew him, and he died of a methadone overdose um, in the year two thousand, which I was five years old. I didn't really know him or anything, but that scared me enough about drugs that like I never I it was not something I was interested in for most of my like growing up life even while I was like drinking moonshine and shit like (laughs) um but so then I went to high school I kind of stopped well I was also like in a very unstable that maybe is a little more private like my just like non-musical life was very unstable while I was living in New Mexico and it got a lot more stable when I got to Colorado, so I kind of, I had never actually put these dots together, but like I kind of stopped drinking and stuff when I was in like high school, because I guess I had a lot more structure and whatever in my life, it would, you know, I wasn't that worried about it. But then when I started touring full-time, I didn't go to college. I was, I would have gone to a music school and I was already playing in a band full-time with my dad um, and Annie. And I was like, well, I don't need to go to school to get the job I already have yeah so we started touring and I don't really I mean again it must have just started kind of slowly but I remember like I just started drinking more and more and I got really good at it like I was very good at drinking and it's interesting for me now to like tell stories about it because it all f- still feels very normal and felt extremely normal at the time, but it's crazy. Like I was, I would show, before I moved here to Nashville, I would come and just hang out and um, I have a really hard time feeding myself as like a side effect of ADHD. And so- like, what do you mean? Like you forget to eat? Yeah, and like the shutdown of like too many options. And so it's very much just like, what is the mm-hmm. fastest way to get dopamine? And so I uh, I would just, I would be staying at somebody's house for a week and only eat Oreos and drink wine. That was all I was consuming. <laughs> and it seemed very normal to me. And, but I never, it was never like a problem. Like I was never drunk on stage. I was never I wasn't missing things I wasn't you know it wasn't really a 
problem. There'd be some isolated incidents, like you know, something would get out of hand, and I would get scolded by my dad. <laughs> but like, um, it wasn't a a big problem. And so what made me realize was. Um, connecting with more people and it was being in a relationship with somebody who was um she wasn't like super comfortable with drinking any way like she was very like worried about alcoholism mm -hmm. and um the um the sort of thing that kicked off the conversation that led to me quitting was um i went to a trixie mattel show here in town <gasps> Oh, it was amazing. It was the funniest show I've ever been to. And my friend who I went with knows her. And so we were like hanging out backstage and I got hammered. I mean, it was bad. And I went home to my girlfriend and like was ridiculous, just like very drunk. And like, and she was like, I'm not going to deal with this. And I was like, you're right. And so I just sort of stopped like, and it wasn't like a big deal for me either. Like when I was in high school, my friend I had a friend who he was like kind of bigger he was just built a little bigger and so whenever on the rare occasions where we try to drink like steal a bunch of liquor from my friend's mom or whatever like w he wouldn't ever get drunk and it sometimes we'd be like well we can like try to get you some stronger liquor and he's like no the way that I look at it like if I I like drinking a little bit and if I do it too much then I won't ever be able to do it just a little bit mm. and he said that and I even at that point in time I must have been like 17 I thought I am going to hit that threshold eventually I just <laughs> like made that real I was just like that is going to be what happens and like when I had that conversation with my partner I was like it has happened <laughs> I am done with this forever now I'm at that place yeah and, and that decision was driven by like that cognition of like Kelly, like kind of like what you were saying, like I am drinking a bottle and a half of wine every night as I answer parent emails. And it seems normal. Yeah. It seems it, normal. Yeah. It was the sentence, I only black out like three times a year. It's not that big of a deal. And her being like, that is a big deal. And me being like, oh, okay, I well, see. And, and the thing is, is that like, I guess when you're around party culture a lot um, mm. and as performers, you're around it because a lot of times performing is in a place that has alcohol as part of the deal. And, you know, it, you're around everyone who is drinking. I, drinking is what is going on. And mm. so it's, it's activity. Like Right. That's it seems like it's normal because all you do is go from place to place where alcohol is the main cash cow yeah. of that premises, you know, well, and it created this. There was this interesting thing that I did start to notice, like I had started to notice for a different reason, which was that in my like social life, I had started to feel like a ghost because I had all these friends and like all these people I would meet and like have all these great connections with. But it was a special event for them like they were doing something that was outside of their life they were at a festival yeah and then they would go to their regular life but i would go to another festival and like i didn't i only existed in the memories of a ton of people so then when the dots started to also connect of like oh these people are getting blackout drunk this one 
one weekend of this year and I'm going somewhere else to do the exact same thing. Yeah. And yeah, you start realizing that. Mm -hmm. Let's try this on for size. I've been thinking about this as you've been talking, Tristan. Like, the hang is so important to musicians, right? The hang. That's like as important as the gig, I think. Right? I mean, at least it's pretty close. It's the yeah. it's the part that is it feels special to me. You know, the audience isn't there for the hang, but I get to be, right? Yeah. And 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 like being in community with your other people, but musicians <laughs> drink a lot. So like if or you want to be stuff. a part of the hang, you probably have a drink in your hand and how do yeah. you get away from that because as you were talking i was thinking if i if i decided i was gonna quit drinking i could i could do without like my white claw that i have in my music stand i have like a little cup holder there mm. which is a refreshing beverage when you're sweating um <laughs> but what would i do when a fan buys a shot of tequila and brings it up and hands it to me because it would it is culturally very yeah. rude i play in a mexican band it would be really rude for me not to take that shot it'd be like what what is wrong with this this like pinchy white lady right yeah so <laughs> talk to me about that what happens to the hang i do your story reminds me very specifically of um being in ireland and i mean I, we would drink an insane amount in ireland but we were like hanging out with this really like famous and like well-known sort of trad musician who had quit drinking and watching Irish people try to like wrap their head because we clearly weren't from there, but like he clearly was from there and it was, they couldn't understand, like they refused to not buy him drinks and he just had to not drink them and people were very confused by it and it seemed very yeah. difficult. And for me, like, in bluegrass it's not as big of a deal because like i said i never really did the drugs and like so i have some experience of just being like i'm just going to be here and not doing this but there is a, i very distinctly remember the first time i ever considered smoking a cigarette was somebody offering me one like in a hang situation me being like no i don't want one and and it was somebody like that i wanted to talk to and right. get to know a little better um and like that wasn't gonna happen if I wasn't smoking a cigarette. <laughs> and, right. And like with drinking, it's just weird. But I will say I never, I hated seltzer. I never <laughs> drank seltzer. I, and now it is, I've, I have six of them a day. Like I drink decaf coffee. It's, it's like every single stereotype immediately became true. I was just like, well, <laughs> I need to be doing something. Yes. I, I did not. Yeah, I'd love to jump in on this one with the, old, yeah. um, with the marijuana scene and um, that kind of badge of identity that goes along with the um, the old Jerry Garcia, David Grisman um, school of thought jam grass because we worked out of we worked out of Colorado um, and I quit drinking in Colorado, um, but it was years before I could give that up because it um exemplified you know i think marijuana music are a very powerful mix and especially represents kind of the progressive 
it represented a lot of things to me. It was like a security blanket. Um, and as a woman at these festivals, the hang is as a married woman too, Mm. the hang is like laden with you, you know, I just, I just put on the dress and the boots Mm. and I just did this thing that as a woman is very, um, related to my charm world and my whole, my whole life as a performer has been about me putting the boots on and playing this little game where I'm exchanging a certain amount of my soul for the opportunity to get to play music. And so for me, the hang was fraught with anxiety um, about, you know, I'm going to have to like avoid this situation. I know people are going to come up, they're going to come in for the hug, you know, they're going to come in for the jam. And I, there might um, even be an ass grab. There were, there were, you know, uh, I have pretty nice ass, but that never happened. <laughs> it's always like, what is wrong with me? You know, you play as a woman, like you have this both, you're both like, you know, this is the reason that you're in this band was a thing that happened to me a lot. Even when Tristan oh. and I were, were like, this is the reason that you're here rather than I'm a great musician that's been playing the fiddle my entire life. And I bring a lot of soul and a lot of authenticity to it. And people will treat you that way. So the anxiety was overwhelming. The anxiety was overwhelming. And then the trying to disappear while I'm still out, I'm standing here, but I have erased my identity so that I can do it. Um, Was Mm -hmm. as a mother, as a wife, as a human, um, was something that it took years for me to realize, like, what am I trading? I'm trading my authentic self for that. And, and that's the thing that really to this day allows me to be abstinent because it took forever to separate. Like I had used my femininity as a tool to have a career as a performer in many ways, or I was told that, or I believe that about myself. Um, and I, and the backlash of that was when I don't want to play that game anymore, I don't want to play that game anymore. And yet people didn't act like I, they would take me seriously mm. because I wasn't demanding being taken seriously until very recently. And that coincided with being older mm-hmm. right now. And now mm-hmm. I go into these situations and I'm invisible as I'm getting older, I'm starting to be yeah. invisible as a woman yeah. And it's the greatest feeling I've ever had because I could give a crap <laughs> and I finally get to be me again. And it's been since I was like 11 years old that I could just be me. Um, I don't know if that's a universal phenomenon, but when they talk about women in the music industry, it's like phenomenal what you're dealing with. You can either be one of the guys and be out there with a beer and yep. just be one of the guys, but I said that said, is you know, clearly the track I've chosen. By the way, killed me. I about died from being one of the guys, you know. And I also <laughs> like it's interesting to have the. I'm a teacher, and like I think yeah. that Tristan is one of the most amazing minds of our generation. Whether he plays the mandolin or not, it doesn't matter to me what he does. Um, and so. It's one of those, you know, we stood next to each other. We made those drives. We laughed in the van together. And as a mother and as a teacher, like the idea that like we're having these parallel experiences together as just humans and that we're never really able to 
get to a higher place with it until now, many years later, is like a little bit cry making for me because it's that agape. We want to be good. And that's one of the things I love about sobriety. It's like, we are, I am not a bad influence on you. You are not a bad influence. I mean, let's get to a place where we can make music and we can know that we just brought each other to a higher place. Cause I know everybody's had a tough background, you know? It's amazing though, Annie, it takes time for that realization to happen, but look at what's happening right now. Like you two together helping, like, I am just saying like, we share this show internationally. And I am just guessing here because all of us kind of understand as musicians um, who have been performing musicians in the circuit. And I am guessing that even the classical field has issues with substance abuse and- Hit orchestras, there are flags. <laughs> oh, hell yeah. There. Okay. okay. Um, so so yeah. it's like, those of us who choose to be music teachers, I'm just guessing, like even public school music teachers, I'm just guessing that maybe we have more exposure to um, environments where substance abuse is a thing that happens more often, especially if we've been a prof professional performer in any capacity. And I think there's probably more music teachers out there than say out loud or than we think about or than we know of that this crosses their mind. And they're like, crap, I am putting away a bottle and a half of wine on a Tuesday night and this, I'm going to need to stop, you know? And Annie- Like it with was literally a, a couple, it was like a part of my job, it accompanied. It was like, right. it was like, well, yeah. why don't I have pieces yeah. shipped to me well, when I sign my contract? It felt that necessary, you know? Well, you know, Kelly, you were talking about like, you know, you got the 350 kids on your roster, you're doing the thing. And you know how crazy a full-time teaching job is along with professional performing on the side, mm -hmm. which all of us do or did. And, um, it's like, and Annie, you kind of brought into the picture, you know, I had kids, I had my husband, I had, and Tristan, you said my partner. Well, life happens even to very busy full-time teachers that have gigging that they do outside of public school teaching. Life happens. So when Kelly and I worked together at Washington Middle School, um, life kind of came to a head for me. And um, Kelly was actually like literally the person that physically carried me across the break on this one. But I was in a very bad marriage and that marriage started unraveling um, and it just became a, a dangerous situation. And I was responding to the pain I was in probably by definitely upping my intake of alcohol and um, utilized alcohol as my mechanism for numbing myself to what I was going through at the time. And um, <laughs> right, I mean, like Kelly and I were like, we were allowing wine to get 
me and her vicariously through me through this thing because we were teachers together we were like soulmates in the classroom teaching together best friends you know and kelly is like literally taking on getting me across the break in a very dangerous situation where oh, i carried that double bed all by myself baby that's, <laughs> that's right that's right i had just gotten out of a surgery and i couldn't lift anything more than 10 10 pounds and my ex-husband wouldn't allow uh it wouldn't help carry the mattress from the the house that i was moving out of at that moment and kelly was like well screw it and she just muscled that <laughs> she muscled that mattress all the way to the pickup truck Luckily, <laughs> we got that <laughs> but like that whole entire like period of time was a complete blur for me and um i was definitely numbing with with alcohol and tristan like you i started my party lifestyle way early because i grew up in montana and it's just a partying place drinking is a thing in montana my family is my my family <laughs> has many people who are heavy drinkers and um we party, man, like the family parties, we throw down. I love partying with It's the best. Like, I mean, back, <laughs> back when I was a partier, partying with my family was the best. The I got best. slow clapped once by the family because I had such a night the night before. It was <laughs> I mean, good times. I mean, such, such good times. But yeah. Um, and Annie, kind of like you, like I, I go through these, I went through this really hard time. It was trauma. It did a number on my health. So after the whole divorce thing, I went to the doctor and found out that I had hypertension. Like now I have high blood pressure. Great. That's awesome. You know, and I'm like turning 40 and, and stuff like this. And um, the doctor was like, well, you know, alcohol intake definitely affects blood pressure. So I would, if I were you, I would stop drinking for a while and see if it changes things. And that was the moment I stopped. I was like, I don't want this. And I stopped and I never went back. I'm kind of like you, Tristan, like I stopped and never went back. And um, it's been about six or seven years now. I've lost count. Um, but I it, yeah, it's, it's been a long time and I stopped and, um, like I have a lot we can talk about, like, I kind of want to, we have another 15 minutes left and I want to shift the conversation a little bit to maneuvering in the hang and maneuvering in environments where alcohol is the norm. Um, because now that we are firm in our choice of living this sober lifestyle we we've made some um i don't know we we've had to like bargain with okay well i'm not gonna be uh, I, I don't know i've changed and so i don't have as much fun sometimes at the bar with people and i don't hang out at parties as long and like my lifestyle has changed a lot and it's taken me, it's made me a little sad and mournful to have to. 
or et cetera. And I, and I was talking about, um, you know, how people feel othered unless about half of the people in the room are kind of doing what they're doing or looking like they're looking. And so, you know, for Annie and I, we're accustomed to playing in bands that are all men, except for us. Mm-hmm. So we feel othered. That is one reason. If the whole band is single, like the band I play in and, you know, like trying to pick up chicks from stage, there's a whole other thing. If you're, if you're not single or, um, and you know, with kids of color, if it's all like white kids in the classroom, you feel othered obviously, mm-hmm. but isn't that part of why the hang is weird when you're not drinking? Yeah. Because yeah. everyone else seems like they're drinking. Everyone else seems like- I wonder like if that has something to do with that. I don't For know. For me, it does. Absolutely. Well, yeah, I don't, I, I'm interested in what Tristan has to say about it too. Um, well, I think, you know, in my process of getting sober, which was a process of trial and error. And um, that's another thing that people don't talk about a lot because if mm-hmm. you um, were, you know, a huge part of getting sober is a spiral, a huge part of doing anything mm-hmm. is a spiral process of trial and error and learning and like maybe this, but not that. And then this and that. And for me, the trial and error um, has led me to a place where there there just are no rules. There are no rules in life there. You know what? It doesn't matter. You don't take the shot, take the shot. There are no rules. You're your own agent. And, um, I feel like the idea that there are rules is, um, is just like not freedom. So hang, don't hang, who cares? Uh, never going to give you, you know, there was an IBMA conference that I went to and I, I think I had partied with every single act i mean i think i had been up late jamming with every single person that played and for me that year you know it was kind of cool it's like kind of a victory and and um i wouldn't need to have that experience again i don't need that again i'm be i'm always moving spiritually progressing moving through and um and that's where i live and die by right now there's no rules there's me there's my family there's the fabulous freaking betty davis of my understanding that like i run things through (laughs) and um and there are and just there's no construct go into your teeth teach whatever you want today by the way i give you permission there's no don't email back do email back who cares um Nobody is stopping me from this. Yeah. I haven't been stopped yet. I think I'm doing a lot more help at this point in my life self self-actualized than not. Yeah. That is inspiring. I love it. I love all nothing matters, just to do make choices. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I I will say for me, I, I definitely when I am with a lot of aspects of my life, I can't I don't always like using them as examples because my life is weird like i did not have a nor no part of my life was normal and a lot of it's not particularly relatable but the thing here like hang wise is i was i realized eventually that i was using alcohol as self-medication both to deal with the emotional my daughter uh, every friday forgets that we have the beth and kelly show and calls me during 
You'll be embarrassed. <laughs> we love her. I, I, uh, I was self-medicating both the discomforting parts of traveling. Like I was using alcohol to essentially disassociate. I mean, there's years of my life that I just have this vague memory of because we just driving like 12 hours almost died a lot of times and like you know being loosely drunk for a lot of it made that bearable um but then the other thing was i have like pretty severe anxiety and depression that like now i'm at a much more stable place in my life i have a pretty good handle on all of that but um i at the time didn't so i was drinking like because i'd be at um IBMA or something and I it was I knew I needed to like that was where things were happening like at the hang and I needed to be there but it was so painful to be there so I was just drinking to like make that possible so then when yeah. I stopped like oh I mean I started going to a lot of therapy anyway I'm and like I've become a much more confident person so like like you were saying like there are things that I miss out on like mm -hmm. if something's happening at a bar like a show that i'm not super into but i know people will be there and maybe i should be there i'm not gonna go. like because yeah. i can't there's nothing for me to do there but right. then i'm not actually really sad about that it's like well there's nothing for me to do there i'd rather just be here yeah uh, and the same thing with like i i don't know with a lot of things in my life it's like not everything has to be for me like there can if if the hang is about like getting super messed up and it's weird for me to be there, then it's not for me and it doesn't have yeah. to be. And I feel secure enough in who I am now. I didn't for a long time, but now I do that. Like that doesn't really bother me at all. I'm just like, well, okay, I'll go find something that I want to do. <laughs> but for a long time, that was not the case. And like, it took a while to get there and like having good influences to like sort of show me like that it was okay for me to feel okay and to want to feel okay in situations right yeah. this makes me think about how many um groups of band directors i know that get together like you know on a regular for a regular hang at like a brewery or something just to mm -hmm. kind of talk, sh talk shop and share space together but I never have ever gone to any of them um, for a couple of reasons, mostly because I just have a, I have enough, I, I don't need more things to do. And if I'm gonna add stuff to my schedule, I want it to be fun. And I do like hanging out with the dudes, but it is also kind of what I do all the time. So I don't go for that reason. But then I also don't really like beer that much. It's like, why am I going to have a $30 bar tab to like sit around and have a conversation that I've had 500 times, you know? Yeah. So that's a good reminder. We don't have to do all the stuff. Yeah. I do think I, I, I have to also always remind myself, like, I, again, have a very weird life and I have a very successful life. I've had a very successful career. Like I'm in a position where like, I don't have to be every, like, I'm not, I don't have to hustle as hard to like make connections and stuff. 
so I privilege to not feel like you have to go. Yeah, it, it's, I, yeah, like I, in Nashville, there's always stuff happening. Oh, well, right now, Americana Fest is happening. And like, there's all these shows and all these things. There's also the COVID aspect where it's like, am I going to like ex ex risk exposing myself to go like hang out with like, there's a lot of people in town I'd love to see, but like, mm -hmm. I don't want to go to the loud bar. I just don't want to go. But there's lots of, <laughs> there's lots of friends of mine who have moved here recently who like, they kind of have to go like, cause yeah. they need to meet the people. I already know everybody there, like, right. but they don't. Mm -hmm. Thank well, you for bringing so that up. Yeah. Yeah. That's so good to hear too, because I just remember that of all the musicians that I've ever known, Tristan, you just could not stop playing. You just could not stop playing. Tristan played. I mean, we were, you were making your career, you were playing 10 hours a day and nobody could really keep you from doing it. It's like such a, a good thing to hear that that's rewarded that meritocracy mm -hmm. exists in the music industry. That's cool. I, yeah. I like I like it about being in, that's part of why I moved to Nashville. It's just that I, I understand there are lots of extremely valid criticisms of Nashville, including that it's a very hyper competitive place. Mm -hmm. But I like I personally like that. Like I like working really hard and I like getting better at what I'm doing. And that's kind of just what everybody's doing all the time is just working super hard because every single gig, every almost every any poster I have that's framed is a gig that I got called for two days before it happened. Mm -hmm. So I have to be, I have to stay ready. You have to be on your shit, man. You got to be there. Yeah. 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 And you I like that. You like Hank Williams and just be like passed out in the lawn and then. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not. I'm not cute or talented enough to do that. Uh, you're adorable. You are cute and talented <laughs> enough. But I think what, so that's not true. But what is true is that um, there are different rules for different people, right? I mean, that's definitely true. And there is an old guard in teaching. Oh yeah, band teaching, orchestra yes, teaching. Sure different rules apply the rest of us don't get to do that anymore right. right like the 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 world continues to evolve and um we gotta go with it and um some folks go down kicking and screaming and and uh hopefully we can all just continue to shift and learn and be easy with each other and uh not make each other have tequila shots if we don't want and uh you know <laughs> or do it or do it and go to mexico i mean it's like yeah. totally <laughs> or, or or you have like your best buddy that you do things with who might still drink and we're at you know a teacher happy hour and my best buddy will pour me a uh la croix yes yeah and hand it to me you know so while everyone else is getting wine in. and like I'm covered and I don't have to go to the to the bar and say can I get a virgin margarita or can I get <laughs> and I feel like such an idiot sometimes when the bartender's like uh it's just gonna be like bitters and like lemon juice I'm like okay I'll have it thank you right yeah or, or you can you can just 
come up with the greatest song in the world, go up to the top of a large building, set up a drone, play it over loudspeakers and make it on TikTok. I mean, it's like the or is like as your world is as big as you want it to be it, yeah. right now. It's one of the amazing things. And that I never discovered until I got sober was like yeah. this ever expanding reality that doesn't make me go, if I don't have this thing in this certain way, then I can't deal with this. Mm -hmm. And so that expansive creativity, um, mm -hmm. I think, you know, we were going to be joined by Mary, who I knew as a boss at a great Cajun restaurant in Boston that looked at Berkeley from down the street. And then one day she threw down the beverages and then she started writing songs. And now she's like one of the John, John Prines of our time, you know, like, absolutely. Or yeah. just do this thing that you don't even have rules around just do it and, yeah and like there's so many more approaches like you just pointed out that maybe you don't think about that i, I when i quit drinking one of my like very serious i was making my little plus delta chart and one of my extremely serious things was like am i gonna stop being funny like i'm uh -huh. i well, and part of my job, like not just my performing job, but just like I do a lot of stuff. My job is to be charming. And I was an extremely charming drunk. I have it was I was cool, man. Like there's pictures of me with a gin and tonic and blue suede shoes on the cliffs overlooking the Irish Sea. That's cool. And I. <laughs> I like would hide beers in all of the fire extinguisher things at Raleigh at the IBMA so that I could be walking down the hall and open the fire extinguisher and pull out a beer. And that planned your coolness, dude. <laughs> that is some next level shit, man. It was it was awesome and it got me it was like and it got me jobs, like, because it, it, it was cool. And I was like, am I going to have to give that up? And it, like, like Annie's saying, no, actually, I just like, mm -hmm. it opened up a whole nother world of props where it's like, I can do that literally exact same thing. And it's actually funnier to do that with a non-alcoholic beer. And <laughs> it is. It is. <laughs> yes, it is. Yes, it is. Oh my God. I just, I just, you know, we are coming to the end of our hour, but I just am so thankful for you two joining us on the show and Kelly um, being willing to go along the ride on this idea that I had to have this conversation um, because this is an important conversation and I whether people talk about it um, out loud or not, it is a it is a thing to more people than we know. And there are a lot of music teachers out there, especially those of us that have had those deep experiences in the performing world mm. that we we might find ourselves in this situation and it's real and it's okay to um to start seeing it and you know reach out if any of you want if anybody listening today has anything they want to reach out about or want help please reach out to the Beth and Kelly show and we will get you connected to help um, if that's something that we can help you do. But hopefully today we've touched on a topic that
touches some folks in in real important places. So absolutely that and it, that absolutely reach out to me or I'm sure Tristan and if you're ever in the Midwest and there's there's so many once you've been through this, um, you know, it only takes a spark to get a fire going. You know, it's like in a, at festivals, they're starting to have meetings. At conferences, they're starting to have meetings. More of that. Let's all live until we're 125. Yeah, yeah. And if I see any of you at a music teacher conference or um, IBMA or Gen or any of the cool conferences, um, let's let's hang together and um, have a soda drink. water, man. Have a soda water. Have a soda water. A million thanks to our listeners, followers, and subscribers. The support we receive monetarily and otherwise helps us to be able to spend time creating a quality product, and it allows us to tap into partnerships and resources to which we wouldn't normally have access. We are stoked about the journey of learning we have ahead of us, and we are delighted you've decided to join.